0: Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Uh, Today we conclude our series, Failing Faith. Let me ask, do you ever doubt? No, you say. I doubt that, all right? Now, again, I'm sold out to the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that he came that we could have a fulfilled life. I, I have my faith in God and I have my trust in God, but at times I've doubted. I've even shared some of those doubts in in this series, Failing Faith. You know, here I am, supposed to be leading and teaching people scripture, and again, I have to confess to you that there are times where I've doubted God. But I thank God. I thank God for the Bible, because I believe that God speaks to us through the scriptures. The problem is that although many people want God really to speak to them, and we have a God who wants to speak, but we just don't ask him to. We expect them to. Many of us are tempted to blow through the reading of the Bible and simply check it off as our religious to-do list. And for some, as we open uh, the Scriptures, it's just really more to learn some facts. Like, we're, you know, we're, we're learning facts of the faith, more like a trivial pursuit game. Maybe, and my suggestion would be to you, is that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, maybe before you read, try sitting there and praying you know, asking God to pursue you, that telling him that you want to hear from him as you begin to read his word. You know, invite him to speak to you through his book, and then jump in. Now, I find that in my own study, you know, you, you come across these crazy stories in the Bible, and you're trying to make sense of them, right? There's a bizarre story in, in the passage of Judges uh, chapter Judges chapter 11. And here we have a guy who says that, you know, if God gives him success in battle, uh, he will sacrifice whatever comes out of his house to greet him when he returns home. Now, he wins. He wins the battle. He has his success. And now he's coming home. And uh, I think this guy was probably hoping that maybe there would be some sort of goat or camel or pet cow or whatever is going to come out, right? But unfortunately, his only child is the first thing that comes running out of his house. And he has to keep his word. And I thought, okay, like, there can't be anything that God can say to me from this story. Like, you know, am I going to kill my children when I come home from winning a hockey game? Like, you know, I look at this story, I go, this guy's an idiot. And then as, as if to hear God say to me when you're reading it, Jerry, you are the idiot in the story. You know, how often do you speak before you think, Jerry? And I, you know, those are those ouch moments that get you thinking, like, how many times does my mouth end up destroying another person? Yeah, ouch. Or when, you know, you go to the woman of the well uh, uh, and she gets caught, sorry, the woman who gets caught in the act of adultery, that that one, and, you know, Jesus totally lets her off the hook. And when I read that, you know, this woman who is, messed up and you know I go God what, what's the application for me out of this passage and you know it's almost as if you hear God saying Jerry that woman is actually you but God you know I've never done anything like I've, I've never cheated like that and God says well Jerry every time you sin I catch you in the act it's those aha moments right well well, God well, you know why didn't this woman get stoned for her crime and you know why don't I have to suffer for my sins and then it's almost as if God says, well, you know, there's grace. And maybe because Jesus has already done that for you. See, I think God will speak to us when, through Scripture when we approach it in the right way. In humility, it's, it's, it's like having a sacred conversation. And I believe that God speaks to us in a language that we understand. And when I read the Scriptures, I actually see that at times, a doubting is a great thing. And I'll read scripture and God can take my doubt and he can use it to strengthen what I already believe. And yet, there are still times in our faith where we come to that place of doubt. And it's like just being in a, a desert. You know, the Bible is filled with people who have doubted. The most famous of these people was Thomas. Thomas was best known for not believing in the resurrection of Jesus, even after all of his friends, the other disciples, all swore by it. And though it's not in the Bible, history has handed him the nickname Doubting Thomas. And Thomas was one of the 12 disciples that Jesus picked to do life with. When you think about it thomas he walked he talked personally with jesus he saw jesus do these great miracles he saw people getting raised from the dead and if anything could change your mind about doubting them was to see somebody get raised from the dead thomas witnessed all of this and more and yet thomas doubted now i don't like to call thomas doubting thomas because personally i think that he gets a bad rap I personally can relate to Thomas the best out of all the other disciples with a very close second to Peter, Mr. Outburst. But Thomas is a realist. He he knows that a, when a person dies that they basically stay dead, that's, you know, how things play out. And when the other disciples told him that Jesus, you know, that same Jesus who was recently nailed to the cross visited them, you know, he, he wasn't so quick to believe it. You know, he needed proof, he needed uh, evidence, and so The other disciples, they told him, you know, we have seen the Lord. But he says, he responds, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. You know, overall, we really don't know too much about Thomas. Maybe he had some sort of family business that he gave up to follow Jesus, to be a part of Jesus' circle. You know, Thomas heard Jesus, he followed Jesus And then he left everything behind, he left his job, he left his family, he left his home, he left everything to pursue Jesus. Because he believed that Jesus called him to do just that, follow me. And there was not a doubt at the time for Thomas. And so for three years, when you look at it, Jesus poured his life into his disciples. He's teaching them. He talked about how he was going to die and rise again. Thomas heard all this. Thomas knew what was going to happen. Jesus talked about it. And then one day when it happened, Jesus died. It rocks Thomas' world. And he begins to doubt. Three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead. The word's out what had happened. Jesus has risen. There's this excitement. There's chaos because of what Jesus that he did what he said he was going to do, Thomas finds out. And I believe Thomas wanted to believe with everything that he was hearing. He, he, he wanted to believe that Jesus was risen, but he doubted. And a lot of people have looked at Thomas's doubt and felt that it was a bad thing. You know, the, some people bash Thomas for doubting, and yet I believe that it's probably one of his greatest assets. Because sincere doubt, when it's handled properly, can become a gift. My bouts with doubt left me strengthened in my faith. And some of you maybe are watching and you're doubting. And I would hope that today that this life lesson will actually help you. Again, confessions of a pastor, I still feel like Thomas sometimes. I'm cynical. I'm stubborn. I'm I'm very self-aware of that and and, and I'm slow to believe. I am quick to doubt. I don't know about you. Um, This is probably one of the reasons why I'm so bad at being a Pentecostal, right? Because like did I just say that? Mm, like, I believe in miracles. I believe in what we call the work of the Holy Spirit. I do, but I'm just skeptical at what many call miracles or what many call the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I have to wonder, maybe I'm Pentabaptist or Mentecostal. I'm not quite sure. But that's my confession this morning. John chapter 20. Let's go to the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures have to say. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So you have to ask the question, where did he go? Where was he? Okay, ask that question. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Modern day vernacular is yeah, right. Now, I cannot speak for you today. But this passage of scripture is refreshing because in most churches, sincere doubting is not very popular. As 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 a matter of fact, in many churches, sincere doubting is not even spoken about. How dare you doubt, right? All you need is faith. And Thomas didn't care what people thought. He had his doubts. And the first step in him overcoming his doubts was really to be honest with himself. And so he put it out there. He said, look, if God is alive, he needs to prove it to me. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And I think Thomas was really thinking further down the line and the consequences of if Jesus did really rise from the dead and what that would mean for Thomas. Because Thomas knew that if Jesus did rise from the dead, then his life was about to be changed again. Thomas knew that if this was true, he he would have to, you know, whatever, give up his family business or whatever. And that's where I wonder where, you know, when it says Thomas wasn't around, I wonder if he went back home. We're not sure. That's just me speculating. But I think Thomas knew deep down in his heart that he would probably have to give his life to tell the world that Jesus is alive. And if Thomas knew that he was going to do that, he, he would not be able to take somebody else's word for it. He, he wanted to see it for himself. You know, how many times when you think about it, that we believe things simply because other people told us, like Facebook. Or, you know, I believe what I believe because my mom or my dad told me or because my teacher told me or because my pastor told me. You know, for me, there came a time in my life, like, and, and I believe actually in all of our lives, where what people told us is not enough. My belief has to be my belief, and I have to own it. And in order to own it, a part of me had to doubt it, and this led me on a journey. It led me to seeking it and finding out the answers, and it led me to believing again. You know, this is one of the reasons why I pray for the kids at Seoul. You remember, remember pre-COVID when we bring the kids forward? And my, my main prayer is that they would make their faith their own. See, Thomas was not willing to settle for second-hand news when, when a first-hand experience was an option for him. Now, Look how Thomas handles his doubt in Scripture. He was honest. And, and, and I think today we all need to be honest about our own doubts. Because honesty for a Christian is, is a very hard thing. Just saying what it is. Because uh, in my opinion, most Christians are great at lying. You can say amen or ouch, right? Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the meme that first appeared when our Yeah, that first appeared when COVID started going around. We all were forced to wear masks, and it went like this. Some of you are mad about having to wear masks to church, but you've been doing it for years. I think that's hilarious because there's some truth to it. You know? Some people, their life can be falling apart, and everything is going wrong, wrong when they gather together on a Sunday. And the common response to the question of how is it going is, well, it's good, or it's fine, or it's even peachy. Like, you know, but everything is not good, and many people are afraid at admitting that they are going through a hard time because they're afraid that they're going to be judged, and they're afraid that they're going to be looked down upon. And many people are even afraid to admit that they have doubts about some things in the church because the church has not been a safe place, maybe, for them to admit their doubts. And many church people can't accept the fact that some believers have doubts. There are some people who are afraid that if they were honest, that they would probably be abandoned by their church. And I think that that's sad. You know, very few Christians are honest about their doubts. But when I look into the scripture, I am reassured that Thomas himself was honest with his doubt. You know, for some people, they hang on to the saying, you know, the Bible says it and I believe it. Well, that works for some people. But however, it doesn't work that way for me. Now, I don't know about you, but I have my doubts about things that I read. I have questions about things. You know, I look around the world and I see things happening all around me. And, and, and I could play the game that I'm this rock of faith and impress everybody and I can acknowledge, but I don't. And I acknowledge the fact that I do have my doubts and I don't always understand and I don't always get it. And I think because I've questioned in the past, I honestly believe that's why my faith is so strong as what it is today. Let me say this. We here at SOUL, we welcome your doubts and your questions. I never want to be in a place where people believe something just because I say it. We are doing everything we can to teach you. To teach you what we believe is the truth. And I honestly believe it with all my heart. But here's the critical issue. You need to get into the scriptures and you need to feed yourself yourself you need to ask the hard questions like why do you believe what you believe you know whether you're a christian or not as you watch this do you believe what you believe because of your parents or is jesus the only way to heaven did the resurrection really happen you know feel free to question those things there's nothing wrong with that we created this church to be a safe place for that for those who don't believe to come in and to take as long as they need to find out what it is that they're looking for but it's not just enough good enough to ask the questions if you're not willing to take the time and the effort to pursue the answers to the questions that you're asking. Let's go back to our story because we read Thomas saying, you know, at least I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger there and stick my hand in his side. Like, you know, again, all he is saying is that when I see it, then I'll believe it. And if he knew that Jesus was alive, um, that meant that the world had come to know it. And this is going to cost him everything. And I think that this guy just wanted to confirm it first. Now, when you begin to read the New Testament, we see that the New Testament is actually quite clear, and it does speak of Thomas, and it talks about Thomas's intense loyalty to Jesus. When Jesus is making his last pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it is Thomas who seemed to be the only one out of them all, who understood the situation in John 11:16, Let us also go that we may die with him, Thomas says. Thomas may look before he leaps, but he's not adverse to leaping. He's, he's there. He's all in. And Jesus is intensely loyal to Thomas as well. Rather than giving up on the disciple who doubted his resurrection, he later appears to him much like he does to all his other friends. And what, imagine, imagine the scene. We pick it up in John chapter 20. A week later, so the news is out, Jesus is out. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Okay, so he was gone, now he's back. Through, though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. <laughs> you can almost see it now. Like, you know, Jesus walks in, he's glancing around the room, and Thomas is there. Eyes popping open, probably embarrassed and probably trying to shuffle behind one of the larger disciples, right? Possibly Peter. And and, and Jesus' eyes soon meet the realist. And you know, would almost wonder and expect that, you know, the hammer to slash on, smash down on Thomas' psyche, right? Break it into a million pieces. You know, Jesus is going to come in and set him straight, maybe humiliating him for doubting the Son of God. Thomas will now receive his nickname forever. It will be ever etched into history as a doubter. But this doesn't happen. The Son of God, who spent years telling his disciples that he would one day rise again, he fails to say to Thomas, I told you so, And his reaction to Thomas's doubt fails to carry any condemnation. There's no humiliating nickname or vicious indictment. Instead, Jesus looks at Thomas and he says, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. So rather lashing forward in offense, Jesus gives Thomas the evidence he needs. Jesus tells him to investigate. The Greek word for place literally means shove. Shove your finger, shove your hand. Jesus has nothing to, to hide. Thomas asked for proof, and the proof now is standing right in front of him. And we don't know if Thomas actually took Jesus up on his offer, but what we do know is, Thomas' acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus even has a follow up response You know, because you have seen me and have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That seems actually to be directed more for the benefit of John's readers, which is really you and I, than it does for any criticism of Thomas. But the beauty of this is that Jesus offers room for moments of doubt. On the screen, I've shown this painting by uh, Caravaggio before. It's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. And it illustrates a scene between Jesus and Thomas beautifully. The scene is dark, it's moody, it's actually in contrast to what should be a, celebra- a scene of celebration. But here, Caravaggio captures the certainty of spiritual doubt in all those dark shadows. And as much as we all wish that life and faith would possess, a, like, you know, an airy tale of haze, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's not always the case. And even the best of us doubt. But like in John's narrative and in Caravaggio's painting, it shows that the Christian faith, it, it, it argues that Jesus loves us where we are, despite the doubt Despite the darkness, despite the dirt. You know, growing up, I, I experienced a lot of uncertainty as a child, as a teen. I, was, I think I was very insecure. I think part of the other issue is I never wanted to be labeled as a doubter. And when I actually finally, you know, mustered up enough courage to ask questions about the Bible or miracles to somebody maybe else other than my parents, I was told, you just need to have faith. You're a preacher's kid. You know, as I shared a couple of weeks back in my first year of seminary, I let my questions fly. I, and, and I realized that when I was letting my questions fly, Thomas stood there right beside me, encouraging me, so to speak. However, over the time, I realized that Jesus was standing there too. And not with a nickname and not necessarily with all the answers, but always with his presence and could I say, guiding my hand into his side. You know, I think the reason that many people fear doubt is because they don't actually know what doubt is. You know, historically, the church has treated doubters poorly, and if you think about it, there are Thomases everywhere, inside and outside of Christianity, and I... I love what Alistair McGrath, the author of Dawkins Delusion, he, he, he said regarding doubt. He said this, Everyone who believes anything significant or worthwhile about the meaning of life does so as a matter of faith. So every worldview, including atheism, it requires atheism. It requires trust. And no view can be conclusively proven in its entirety. And so the individual who believes that there is no God still has to contend with the presence of qualities like morality in our world. You know, without God, is it logical to believe in the right and wrong are simply the result of some sort of movement within the scope of human evolution? If the circumstances were different, our right could actually look like our wrong. Think about that for a bit. So what makes right, right, and wrong, wrong? And if your mind hasn't exploded, welcome to philosophy and theology, right? Right? So whatever answer the atheist gives, there's a leap of faith that has to take place. And yes, some answers are more convincing than others, but there's always room for doubt. McGrath says that doubt is not skepticism, which is the decision to doubt everything deliberately as a matter of principle. Doubt is not unbelief or the decision not to have faith in God. Unbelief is an act of the will rather than a difficulty in understanding. Also, doubt doesn't mean you lost your faith. Faith isn't like your keys or the TV remote, eh? It takes a little bit more than that, a little doubt to misplace that. We have to remember that. And may I add that doubt might actually be a good thing. There's a book out there called The Critical Journey that charts the phrases or the, 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 the periods of the average person's spiritual development. And it goes all the way from conversion to spiritual maturity. And here's some, something I believe that we can all relate to. The first stage is basic. It's Yeah, it's fairly basic. It's actually called the recognition of God. And here one acknowledges God and his work in their life. And this is when a person professes Christianity, uh, they join a church, they get baptized, they go through growth tracks. You know what I'm saying. It's that starting point, and they start moving into it. The next step is the life of discipleship. Uh, This is the stage where a person begins to create a healthy theology uh, regarding who God is. And most of this theology actually comes from people that They know and they trust. You think about it. You know, you're going to hear people say, well, my pastor says. Now, this is not unusual or strange or cultic. It's because um, when you think about it, why wouldn't the people that we love and respect around us actually help shape our new belief structure? The third stage is called the productive life. This is the doing stage. This is where we get involved. This is where we serve. And not only have we come to Christ and we know him, now we want to actually put our faith into action. And we want to volunteer or simply serve. And for some, this is the furthest stage they'll ever reach. They love God. They serve God. They can repeat what their favorite preacher says. There's an excitement in this stage. And God is operating like we think he should operate. And faith, for the most part... If I can say this, it isn't really too challenging. Everything's really good at this place. But the next stage is called the inward journey, or the journey inward. And this stage is, is a deep and in inward exploration. And it's at this stage where we face an abrupt change to an opposite mode. The mode of questioning and exploring and falling apart and doubting and dancing around the real issues or sinking into uncertainty and even indulging in some sort of self-centeredness, right? It comes about me. But it's in this stage that God is released from his box, the box we created and put him in. And I think we discover painfully that God is not who we thought God was. God is different. Because when you think about it, we've all constructed a box with God inside. We've labeled it. We've wrapped it with really nice paper. And we said, this is where I want you to stay. Because we don't like it when God gets out of his box and affects our life. But when God doesn't begin to stay there, we begin to question everything. That's what happened to me in seminary. I began to question the, the resurrection of Jesus. I began to question the infilling of the Holy Spirit. This, this also helped me when our baby Josiah died. See, because the God that I had construed suddenly, he violently morphed into a God that wouldn't actually stay within my worldview. And God erupted through the barriers that I enclosed around him. And it's here then, in that stage, that we encounter what the authors call a wall when we find ourselves in these experiences and they're actually frightening. And the critical journey argues that if we keep moving through this stage, we'll actually come out with a richer inward spirituality. See, our understanding of God may be different than how we understood before, but it will often be deeper and better established. And doubt has been an indispensable tool for my own spiritual formation. The final two stages of the book are the uh, journey outward, right? Where we surrender to God's will fully to direct our lives. With our eyes open and aware but unafraid of the consequences that are there. And finally, the life of love where we reflect God to others in the world probably more clearly and more consistently than we ever thought possible. And as I've overlooked the development of our Western culture, I've developed, I've realized that, you know, we've developed a great sensitivity to harm. We've been trained to fear conflict and pain so much, right? We've lowered the bar for how we define suffering. You know, from things like abuse to bullying, rightly or wrongly, what was once acceptable is now not acceptable anymore. Let me explain. We've become more fearful than ever. See, our kids don't play outside anymore, do they? They don't walk to school anymore, at least not in my neighborhood. And yet the school is right there across the street from houses. We all have security alarms. Being accused of abuse could be as simple as calling a child a he or a she instead of a they. You know, many people talk about their frustration with, politically correct culture, and I can relate to this argument. I really can. But at the same time, that there are some things that shouldn't be done or said. You know, sometimes being politically correct just means being a decent human being. In that same sense, bullying shouldn't be interpreted tough or masculine. I think it's terrible. and needs to be condemned. Racism needs to be called out for what it is, regardless if it was considered normal in, in some past decades. But we have become overly sensitive to conflict and fear. All ideas that stretch our beliefs or incite conflict, what we try to do is avoid them at all costs. We're afraid of not being comfortable, which actually seems like a pretty modern trait if you think about it. It is here in this societal setting that doubt actually becomes an enemy because doubt isn't comfortable it, it's filled with conflict it's filled with mystery and it might even hurt us a little bit when we doubt so instead we shy away from it and we add layer and layer of false authenticity to our doubt until we get to the point that we can't really see it anymore and we just are happy shiny people and the local church, rather than asking how can we stop doubting or, or saying you just need to have more faith, I think the local church, maybe we, we should ask the question, how can we doubt well? And this is where we get into the day-by-day work of religious belief and faith, you know, basically living and living out everyday life. So can I tell you what I've learned about doubt? My answers aren't really perfect, but... I I had to learn that doubting isn't the same as living in permanently in some sort of inconsistency. There there's a difference between driving through the desert and actually setting up your house in the desert. You know, for some of us doubt occupies a place in our mind for years, for others it's maybe months. And I think good doubt is sort of understanding where you are and, and working to come to some sort of stability in that process. And this is not the kind of doubt that James describes in the New Testament, in James 1.6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Rather fruitful doubt is doubt that moves towards consistency and resolution. You know, we've heard the, the phrase that not choosing to decide is a decision in and of itself. The truth is the same with doubt. Deciding to live in doubt permanently is deciding not to doubt at all. Really, it's deciding now to live as a skeptic. You know, be a Christian, be an atheist, just don't live in the middle for the rest of your life. And it also should go without saying that I want you to become a Christian because I am one and... I am trying to share the good news to you. But secondly, like stages of grief, there are stages of doubt, and those stages aren't clean. Bum, 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 bum. This is what's going to happen. I I think that I've actually walked through stage four, the journey inward, a couple of times. You know, whether you want to call it a crisis of faith or whatever, it, it was at seminary, and it was when our son Josiah died. And again, doubt is different for each person. And particularly, I I would say that a believer's doubt is not the same as a non-believer's doubt. You know, you can be convinced of Christianity and still doubt. Experts say that there are three types of doubt. There's intellectual doubt where our minds are unsure whether, you know, let's say the teachings of Christianity are true, which would be my seminary doubt. There is emotional doubt, which is most often associated with some sort of pain. Again, my Josiah doubt, if I could call it that. It's when we feel like Christianity isn't true. And finally, there's moral doubt. And this happens when we are tempted to disbelieve Christianity because we don't want it to be true. It affects us. Uh, there's a story about Tim Keller, great preacher. He tells the story of a young man who began to doubt God. And the guy's first question, the pastor's first question to this young man was, who have you been sleeping with? And the young man is actually stunned because he had been sleeping with somebody, but he couldn't figure out who told the pastor. The answer was God. <laughs> and the application here is that sometimes we doubt Jesus, we doubt our faith, And other times we really don't want it to be true because it affects our lifestyle. There's a book in the back of your New Testament. It's called Jude. This tiny letter opens with Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And again, that says a lot right there. That first word servant can literally be translated as a slave. So Jude is calling himself a slave to Jesus, whom he believes is God. And this becomes actually more radical when we realize that Jude is also Jesus' brother, half-brother, right? But he ref- reveres God with such respect that he only implies it through his relationship uh, to Jesus' other brother, James. And you've got to think about it when you, when you study The scriptures, Jude has really come a long way. He, and along with the rest of his family, initially had thought that Jesus was nuts and out of his mind. Just read Mark 30, 21. Then somewhere in the journey, belief struck him. And it's really hard to argue with a man who was dead for a few days and then came back to life, right? And at the time of this epistle, Jude is now a pastor. He's now preaching about the sibling he once thought was crazy. And Jude goes on to warn, warning his, uh, those who are reading the letter of people who are misrepresenting Christianity, false teachers who were denying the deity of Jesus. And they were living a life contrary to, to his teachings. And so he also mentions another group of people who are torn, who are in between the true message of Jesus and what these heretical teachers were, were preaching. They were caught in the middle They're trying to find that spiritual footing. And Jude could have been very harsh and very dividing here, but he chooses to follow the example of his older brother when he says, be merciful to those who doubt. Jude knew something of doubting, right? He, He used to be one of the family telling Jesus to stop fooling around or maybe the one who said that he's out of his mind. He needs to get committed. But then everything changed. And like the realist, like Thomas, he became a believer. You know, he saw Jesus die. He knew he was buried, but he saw him alive. Then the hardest heart of all was broken by a display of Jesus' faithfulness. He received mercy, and that is the reason he was able to write the letter in the first place. And so soul. Let me remind you that Thomas didn't stop with just being honest with himself. He didn't stop with asking questions, which some people actually do. They ask the questions, but that's it. But rather, Thomas searched for answers. And so that's why I encourage you, if you have questions, look for the answers to those questions because in the same way, Thomas was looking for answers and and his search led him right to Jesus. And as you look for answers, I believe that your search will lead you to him as well. And I believe that when honest people search for God, He begins to reveal Himself and bring them to Him. And Thomas wanted to see for Himself and, 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 and that Him being face to face with Jesus, the risen Savior. That's what it took. And faith grows when we seek the answers to the right questions. And so, listen, it's not enough just to be honest and acknowledge the devout, but you got to pursue the answers. Like I said before, many people don't do that and they just like asking the questions. But let me encourage you, when was the last time you picked up your Bible and you started looking for answers? When was the last time that you got into a life group or you began to share with your life group what was really on your heart? What was your concerns? What was your thoughts? See, so you see, because this is what it means to do life together with other people. And I believe that the journey to discover your answer soul sanctuary will strengthen your faith don't feel guilty don't feel bad that you have doubt rather seek the answers and let God reveal himself to you let's pray father my prayer is that you'd show me the way you sent your son into this world and for some reason we think that it's a story with a happy ending the truth is the story doesn't end It's continued through the lives of the disciples, including Thomas and even Jude. It continued through the early church, the Middle Ages, the Reformation. It continues now right here in this moment that Jesus is alive and he lives and breathes as we live and breathe. So give us the eyes to see the risen Jesus in one another. And help us, God, to live as the body of Christ. God, I believe, but also help my unbelief. Show us the way, I pray. Amen. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for the blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. May God help you through your doubt, and may he guide you as you attempt to live a life that reflects such an unbelievable and awesome truth that He is risen. This week's Soul Sanctuary, go into the world in peace, have courage, hold on to what is good, return no evil for evil, bind up the brokenhearted, support the weak, and help the suffering, honor everyone, love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not done, because by God's grace and strength, May you reflect the hope and truth to the hurting world around you. Amen. See you next week. And we're going to start our new series, Minor but Mighty, as we walk through the minor prophets of the Old Testament. So, Soul Sanctuary, now go. Go in peace and live the church. We'll see you next week.